Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Welcome to the latest episode of the Green Left Podcast. We've got an awesome episode today talking about first-hand experiences in Cuba with Green Left journalist Ben Radford. Um, before we get started, we acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on stolen land that was never ceded. There always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And Green Left is committed to supporting struggles for First Nations justice. Green Left's a people-powered media project that survives only through your support and donations. So if you're not already a supporter, please consider becoming one by going to greenleft.org.au forward slash support. Plans start from $5 a month and make a huge difference in helping us keep this project going. Now, Ben Radford is a Green Left journalist and a member of Socialist Alliance and earlier this year, co-hosted the Green Left News podcast, which you can find on this feed. And Ben has been away on what looks like an incredible trip overseas and has most recently been in Cuba. So welcome to the podcast, Ben. Where are you at the moment? Uh, Yeah, hi, Azak. Thanks so much for having me. I'm in Bogota in Colombia at the moment. Um, But yeah, I've just spent the last six weeks in Cuba. Incredible. We're all very jealous over here. so yeah, you, you're here to talk about kind of your experiences in Cuba and um, recently, obviously, there's been a lot going on internationally with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, global inflation and economic issues. And then, of course, uh, the recent wars, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the uh, Israel's genocidal bombardment of Gaza as well. Um, and in this context, I guess, uh, what's kind of the current situation in Cuba on the ground? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess... I just want to start with maybe a, a bit of a disclaimer that, you know, even though I've been in Cuba for the last six weeks, uh, you know, obviously this doesn't make me an expert, but I guess it's what I've gathered from, from talking to a whole bunch of people there. And you know, obviously there's a lot of different perspectives as well. And so I've just sort of tried to piece together an idea of what's going on based on what I've seen and, and what people have told me. Um, and I guess what it's really reinforced is that, you know, there's still, there's so many things about the Cuban reality that, you know, are impossible to understand, um, without going there. And even then it's, it's still difficult. Um, like I spoke to Cubans that told me that there's so many things that they don't even understand. There's all these contradictions, uh, I guess, like with, with any system. Um, but one thing that's, that's really clear at the moment is that Cubans are going through, a really tough, uh, complicated period, um, and obviously the the global corporate profiteering that's that's causing and benefiting from um, runaway inflation is is hitting the poorest in both rich countries and poor countries the hardest, and Cuba is is no exception to this. Um, you got the COVID pan- COVID nineteen pandemic, um, which hit Cuba really hard. Um, they basically lost all of their tourism or pretty much all of their tourism which accounts for accounted for 10 percent of the country's gdp before the pandemic um and so considering that millions of tourists would arrive every year in cuba um this is pre-pandemic um and i compared that to when i was there um not that long ago um there was there's barely any tourists around and granted it was the the low tourist season but from speaking to people a lot of them said that even in the high season, the tourist numbers are basically a fraction of what they were. Um, so that was one 
one big impact that's had a huge economic impact on, on the money coming into the country, um, Cuba being really reliant on tourism. Another thing um, that I mentioned is inflation. Um, there's, you know, the prices have gone up of, of a lot of basic goods and the wages um, aren't, aren't keeping up with the inflation um, for doctors, for nurses, for taxi drivers, whoever. Um, and there's also big shortages at the moment of, of fuel uh, and medicine. Um, so I, I got there just after the government announced that um, the country should expect even more power blackouts because there's such a shortage of fuel. And, you know, I saw this that everywhere, basically everywhere outside Havana, there was blackouts every day, um, some up to eight, eight, ten hours a day. Um, there's there's big queues outside petrol stations as well, like their motorbikes and taxis and, and buses um, waiting for petrol. Uh, mentioned the shortages of food, like meat, milk, flour. So you go around to a lot of the restaurants um, and they'd essentially be missing most, if not all, of their menu. Um, they'd run out of chicken or run out of eggs. The flour hadn't arrived. They'd run out of coffee. Um, and this also, you know, this doesn't just obviously affect restaurants. This just means, you know, what people were telling me is that these food shortages also mean there's delays in getting their monthly food ration. Um, so in Cuba, I'm not sure if, if some people might know, they have basically have a libreta, which is a, a monthly food ration, um, which has stuff like bread and, and milk and whatever. But yeah, people have been saying that sometimes these items just haven't been arriving or have been arriving um, really late. So yeah, it's, uh, it's really tough at the moment. Yeah, sounds like a very difficult situation. Um, and as we know, Cuba's still under the United States-imposed blockade that began more than 60 years ago. Obviously, this is having a huge impact on day-to-day life in Cuba, um, particularly with a lot of the shortages and things that you've just mentioned. Um, so how, how else is the blockade impacting Cubans at the moment? Yeah, so basically, of all those problems and, and crises I've just mentioned, um, the US blockade basically has either caused most of them or at least multiplies their impact um, several times over. And I guess to briefly explain what the US blockade is, if, if some people don't know, it's essentially this set of, of complex laws that um, block US companies or individuals from trading with Cuba. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's been in place since 1960. And while the US government, you know, likes to claim that this only affects trade between Cuba and the US, that it's a unilateral uh uh, embargo, or they also like to claim that even though it doesn't exist, um, it actually has these really far-reaching impacts because of the US's position in in the global uh, capitalist system and its control of, of the markets. Um, I guess the big examples are that the US can threaten to cut aid off or sanction country, countries for trading with Cuba. Um, it can fine foreign subsidiaries of US companies if they do business with Cuba. And then also the U.S. has this, this huge control of, of most of the world's financial institutions. Um, and essentially the, the core motivation of, of this really cruel policy towards Cuba um, has essentially been the same. And it was revealed in, in this really sh- short memorandum um, in 1960, which uh, basically encapsulates U.S. policy since then, which was based off... Um, and I'm pretty closely paraphrasing it, um, 
So if you want to read it, it's essentially the same, but it's based off the realisation from the US government at the time that there is very there was very little opposition within Cuba to this, this revolutionary process, and so that their policy would have to focus on basically the goal of causing widespread discontent and disenchantment through economic hardship and hunger um, to bring about a, rate, uh, a change of government um, and a change of economic system. And obviously this hasn't been successful, um, but it has brought about uh, so much suffering to millions of Cubans, um, which you can see. And everyone that I spoke to um, and that I asked about the blockade, you know, they're basically all in agreement of the, of the impacts of the blockade. Um, you, you know, you're never going to hear the that bullshit line that's peddled by the US that the blockade doesn't exist or only affects uh, tiny inconsequential things or there's exemptions for medicine. Um, you know, you're not going to hear that because people are experiencing the impacts of it every day and they have been for more than 60 years. Um, and probably one of the biggest uh, impacts is that more than 90% of the world of world trade is done in US dollars, um, which is obviously such a dominance of the one currency, which Cuba effectively can't access. Um, so there's a shortage of this of foreign currency with which they can use to buy imported goods, and they're very reliant on imported goods. And because they're blocked off from most of the global market, that, then it means the stuff they can buy, can get hold of, is usually way more expensive, has to come from far away, has to go through this sort of contorted system of trying to source things that aren't from the US or have... There's a rule that if something has more than 10% of something that's made by a US company, then that's also blocked. Um, so, I mean, everywhere you go in, in Cuba, people are, are desperate for foreign currency, uh, particularly euros, because then it means that they can travel, if they can, to countries like Colombia or Mexico uh, or wherever to be able to buy things that you can't get in Cuba or that are really expensive. And the other, the other sort of really cruel aspect is that the U.S. has has imposed all these restrictions on remittances because um, there's a lot of Cubans that live in the U.S., live in Spain, live in in different countries, and basically it means it blocks Cubans in Cuba being able to receive money from their family. Um, for example, in 2020, when the blockade, the U.S. tightened the blockade, um, Western Union stopped operating in the country, and obviously this was a really crucial time in the middle of the pandemic when a lot of Cubans were particularly doing it tough. Um, and it essentially cut off this really important source of, of money and help for millions of Cubans. And, you know, a lot of people told me how difficult it was and how expensive it ends up being trying to receive this money from their families abroad. And another aspect of it is that uh, this, the blockade essentially sabotages the tourism industry in Cuba. Um, things like Booking.com, Airbnb, doesn't work. You can't book them when you're in the country. Um, my online my online banking didn't work for the whole time I was there because that's blocked because it, it passes through the US financial system and you know even speaking to US tourists they say that's it's a, it's a hassle to try and get to Cuba because of a whole bunch of restrictions on on tourists if they want to go there um, there's there's these big cruise companies that are facing these huge fines for essentially trying to operate in Cuba um, debit cards are blocked you have to use a VPN to be able to book stuff um, things like Zoom, Skype, they don't work uh, because of the blockade, which you know obviously doesn't just affect tourists, but 
Cubans as well who are trying to communicate with, with their family and friends overseas. Um, and another thing on that topic is that because the US has placed Cuba on this list of, of so-called state sponsors of terrorism, um, it means that tourists who've, who go to Cuba then they aren't eligible for an automatic visa if they want to then go to the US, even if it's just for a stopover. Um, so it, it used to be that you could just essentially get a visa on arrival, it was 20 US dollars, but now you, if say if I wanted to go to the US, I would have to apply through the embassy and it costs like 160 US dollars. Um, and then, you know, all the while, the US government and their sort of corporate media mouthpieces are portraying Cuba as if it's some like violent place filled with terrorists um, even if you look on the Australian Smart Traveller website, which is sort of the travel advice website, it says that Cuba has high levels of crime and they advise exercise, exercising a high de- degree of caution when you're there, um, which is, is bullshit. Like, we walked around everywhere with, with no problem, you know, all times of day and night, and the people we spoke to say, yeah, crime crime is really low in Cuba. Violent crime is, is nearly unheard of. Um, you know, probably the only crime you're going to get is maybe the odd opportunistic pickpocket. Um, you know, that's another way of of how the blockade impacts impacts Cuba. Um, coming back to the fuel thing, that uh, one of the one of the blockade laws basically says that if any oil tanker docks in Cuba, then it's not allowed to dock in the U.S. After that, which basically discourages companies from selling oil to Cuba. Um, Cuba used to get its oil from Venezuela, but Venezuela is now under crippling sanctions from the US and is having its own crisis. Um, so now there's this huge shortage that essentially affects everything from transport to agriculture, anything that needs electricity because um, their electricity stations are, are powered by that. Um, it affects, the blockade affects medicine um, because US companies essentially control such a huge proportion of the, the global pharma industry. Um, things like licenses and patents and, and new drugs that are developed. Um, there's even some drugs that, that are used around the world for, for things like childbirth or cancer treatment. Some of these are only available from US companies. So obviously all of these are, are cut off from Cuba. Um, so there's not just that, there's sort of your everyday things like antibiotics, antifungal cream, soap, toothpaste. Um, you walk around and the, the pharmacy shelves are, are basically empty or they have one thing or they've had to sort of make up, like, make their own sort of remedies um, with what they have. And then even if some of these medicines arrive, then a lot of the time they're, by the time they've arrived, they're, it's, they're, they're too expensive uh, for a lot of Cubans to afford. Um, and I guess during the pandemic, this obviously had such, a, such an impact in particular. Um, the US, as I mentioned, tightened the blockade in 2020 in the midst of the pandemic. And so Cuba had even more shortage of things like medical equipment, of ventilators. Um, there's even a story of um, Cuba getting ventilators from a Swiss company, I think it was, and then a US company bought, bought the Swiss company and then essentially said, we're not going to send ventilators to Cuba anymore. And Cuba basically had to ask, oh, can we get a, at least get spare parts for the ventilators? But no, it's not allowed because of the blockade. Um, and I guess, you know, one of the biggest impacts that this has had is alongside um, it's, it's caused this huge economic hardship that means there's been a lot of 
a lot of migration um, out of the country and to the US because the US essentially has this policy, at least until recently, had a policy of, of actively encouraging migration from Cuba. Um, and even now, if you've got family in the US as a Cuban, which many Cubans do, it's easy to get residency. Um, and yeah, a guy I spoke to sort of pointed out the hypocrisy of this, that in all other cases, basically the US sets up walls and, and essentially concentration camps at its, at its borders to keep out migrants, um, except for Cubans. Um, until recently has encouraged Cubans to come to essentially keep undermining uh, Cuban society. And obviously this you know, leads to loss of doctors and, and professionals and workers, as well as a, uh, a lot of young people um, that are leaving. But I mean, I could, I'd keep going on for forever essentially about the stats about you know, how much it's cost the Cuban economy. It's more than a trillion US dollars and, and it's far reaching effects. Um, but you know, it's not just the this economic war, but there's also this this huge psychological war that's that's being waged by the U.S. Um, the U.S. spends billions of dollars every year funding opposition groups, funding disinformation campaigns. You know, that are all sort of called these really innocuous things like Cuban democracy, whatever. But you know, they're essentially there to manufacture discontent, to, to propagandise the US. And another thing they do is they pay news outlets to sort of report on any, any scrap of bad news that comes out of Cuba and then amplify any opposition voices to, to the Cuban government or the Cuban system. And the people I've spoke to have said this, this has had a, a really big impact um, after so many years on, on a lot of Cubans who, you know, facing these quite declining material conditions have have been sold the american dream and have been sold the idea oh, you can you know you can get a job you can you can buy your big house buy whatever you want and you know, I, I met a, a, quite a few cubans that had, had definitely sort of bought into this and would say stuff like you know at least in the u.s you're rewarded for hard work and that they'll be able to buy new cars and and phones and whatever and Another person I spoke to who's who lived through the the difficulties of the the special period in the nineties, she she said that yeah it's sad that a lot of a lot of young people have been influenced by by the propaganda, um, and that there's there's also this this sort of intergenerational gap uh, between I guess some the older Cubans that have have lived through I guess more of and seen the 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 achievements of of the Cuban revolution, the Cuban system, whereas a lot of young people have sort of only, only experienced the, the current difficulties, um, I guess, which, which means that, uh, you know, combined with this US propaganda that it, it has an effect on, on say wanting to leave the country. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, obviously as the blockade has been imposed more than 60 years ago, that, that means there's a lot of like, huge percentage of the population have been living their whole lives uh, under the blockade and mm. probably don't don't know any different to this uh, extreme kind of difficulty that they're facing. Um, but uh, obviously, as, as you mentioned, the, the blockade has been put in place uh, to undermine um, Cuban society and the, the, the Cuban revolution. Um, and socialists in Australia often look to Cuba... Cuban revolution as an inspiration in regards to 
uh, well, at first initially, um, kind of the successes it's had. And then uh, uh, after that, in, in terms of how it's managed to deal with this kind of extreme blockade, um, obviously there's there's been some uh, things that Cuba's done really well, and such as uh, its health system, uh, having kind of the most doctors per capita in the world. And as, as we've talked about the COVID pandemic, they developed their own vaccines and things like that, obviously unable to access yeah. Uh, the uh, other vaccines that were uh, block, blocked by the by the blockade. Um, so I was just wondering, uh, from your experiences, was there was there any other kind of recent wins or successes that you can report on um, happening in Cuba recently? Yes, I mean, despite this this really difficult, uh, complex period, um, Revolution Cubans are still still fighting the blockade and still fighting to get through the the current crises um as well as trying to keep advancing the the achievements of the revolution and you know it's not just australians who look to cuba um for inspiration but people all over the world and what they've been able to achieve in spite of this uh crippling blockade and i I was really i was lucky enough to to meet up with some delegates from icat which is the cuban institute of friendship with the peoples which is this really amazing uh, internationalist organisation that in Cuba that basically works to establish relationships with organisations in other countries um, to, to have these relationships uh, with Cuba and solidarity relationships. And they also organise the things like distributing donations. Um, they put out statements in solidarity with other countries and they organise tours. Um, and they were really helpful in, in explaining a lot of the situation in Cuba and it was really inspiring to find out more about some of the work they do. Um, so someone I spoke to said that the impacts of the blockade mean that Cuba relies a lot on donations. Um, things like for medical supplies, clothes, school books um, and she said it's, it's, it's really tough having to, having to sort of rely on, on donations all the time but at the same time it's really heartwarming that there's this support and solidarity that comes from from everywhere from all over the world and there's this real love for for Cubans and I think it's also pretty reflected in in basically every country in the world being opposed to the blockade um what at the UN General Assembly a few weeks ago only two countries voted against ending the US blockade and that was uh, surprise, surprise, the US and Israel. Um, so that really goes to show. And, you know, it's not just this, this solidarity, it also goes both ways um, because Cubans are still involved in, in some of the most amazing work around the world with medical brigades that, that have been sent out for decades and that were recently, they even sent out to countries in the middle of the COVID pandemic. They sent it to sent out their brigades to 38 countries, places like Italy and, and as well as poor countries in the global south. And uh, another thing, I was also in Cuba when Israel launched its its all-out attack on, on Gaza, its genocidal attack. And within a few days, there was solidarity actions that had been announced um, all around the country that were organised for that weekend. Um, there's Palestinian medical, medical students that, that come to Cuba and have been trained um, in Cuba to, to, to be doctors. Um, and then I guess on the, still on the topic of COVID, there's, there's another 
remarkable achievement that I'm sure many people have heard of is, um, and you mentioned it, of Cuba developing its own vaccine. Um, and this is a real, real point of pride for, for a lot of people in the country. Um, and particularly, they were the first country to develop a vaccine for, for infants um, and the first to vaccinate, vaccinate babies. Um, and this was despite all of these shortages of essential things like syringes, um, the chemical bases to make the vaccines, um, shortage of microscopes. Um, but because Cuba has this incredible state-funded uh, research, like pharmaceutical research, um, it means that they, they develop nearly all of their own vaccines and then export a bunch to two poor countries in the global south, um, often for free if the countries can't pay for them. Um, and Cuba still maintains its, its free universal healthcare system um, a lot of which is is focused on on preventative care. Um, so my partner was was chatting to a woman who was telling her about how doctors, there's this local sort of community family doctors that that come around door to door for for checkups. Um, they set up local clinics um, every few months with specialists like gynecologists, um, so that that people can go and get their checkups and don't have to go, you know, all the way into a hospital. Um, I think another another sort of really remarkable thing that that you notice is uh, a, a sort of lack of a real gaping inequality um, and even like huge class divisions. That's not to say there isn't you know inequality, but not this sort of huge gulf that you see in a, in in a lot of countries, in most countries. Um, and I was speaking to to a Cuban woman from ICAP, and she. She told me, uh, and I quote this, here we don't say rich and poor, because uh, she said, sure, there's some, some people that are, in, that are better off than others. Um, you know, families can eat out more, they can buy fancier clothes or whatever, but she sort of reinforced that in the end, they all go to the same state-run schools, they're treated by the same doctors at the same hospitals, they catch the same bus to work, um, and, and so on. And another thing you'll notice is that uh, there aren't homeless people um, in Cuba. You walk around more than more than ninety percent of Cubans own their own home, which is a a stat that was that was reeled off to me uh, more than a few times. And this was this was a goal from from the get go of the revolution um, to house people, often using homes that were expropriated from from rich landowners. Um, and sure, of course, there's there's problems with currently with overcrowding and there's you know huge shortages of building materials um and then it's also tough when homes get destroyed by hurricanes which cuba is particularly vulnerable to but you know it's remarkable that you compare this to to so many wealthy supposedly advanced countries that have have rampant homelessness and that cuba has has managed to put a roof over everyone's head um i think another another big uh, thing that really struck me um, that's really positive is the I guess the polit- the everyday political engagement and discussion um, you can sort of chat to chat to anyone you walk down the street you'll hear people having these sort of heated discussions about what they think the government should be doing obviously there's criticism there's defending of the government um, but I guess what you know what struck home for me is that this level of sort of everyday involvement in in and this this expectation that the government do something i feel like i couldn't help comparing it to to a lot of my sort of political activism in australia which a lot of it i feel like ends up being 
or is, is almost necessarily dedicated to essentially resisting like the government's latest attacks on public services or or trying to stop a new coal mine like I feel like a lot of it's resistance where that's a big difference from being in a position of like the government needs to to do more like it's providing these things but here's how it can do more and and I feel like in a lot of parts of the world it's almost like people have, have given up that the government actually provides any services like welfare and housing and proper health care because it essentially hasn't for so long but that's just not the case in Cuba um, so whenever thing issues like this come up there's an expectation that yeah should provide keep providing the, the universal health care that we've always had the 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 housing and whatnot so it's it was I had a lot of tough conversations but also a lot of deeply moving and inspiring ones and I think a big one was was just the the resilience uh, and the resourcefulness of of Cuban people the way they have to adapt to the blackouts and the food shortages and having to reuse things to patch things up to repair things you know they got cars that are sixty years old. Um, and, you know, people sort of having to get by by... I met a guy who he, he showed me his, his, his golden goose, um, which he lived in this, in this apartment in Havana. He took me out to the balcony and he's, he's got a little chicken there that, that lays eggs because um, eggs are so expensive now. Um, but he's got his golden goose that lays every other day. Um, and he's got a little herb garden and stuff. And, you know, I guess I don't want to romanticise what is... A really tough struggle to get by but um it was it was really inspiring to see how how people sort of keep fighting i guess and some of some of the older cubans i spoke to uh made made the comparison to the the special period um in the 90s uh when i spoke to talked about how she had to learn how to ride a bike because there was massive fuel shortages so no one could drive around and sort of having to get by with very little medicine and toiletries and whatever. But she she sort of described the, the community solidarity that was made necessary by this crisis of, of helping, of sharing. Um, she said, you know, neighbours would share what little they had with each other. Um, and then at the same time, there was, there was a concerted government effort um, to try and get through it. Of, she talked about workers coming, coming door to door um, during the special period, delivering vitamins uh, to try and avoid malnutrition, especially in, in kids. And so I think, I guess that comparison can be made with, we're still seeing that, you still see that in Cuba. Neighbours give each other food, they, they help each other out. Um, there's these really tight-knit networks of, of solidarity um, that I think will always will always be there, despite how how bad it gets and and... I think that's that's a big point of inspiration, um, and you know that's the, the famous Cuban solidarity that, that that keeps them going. That means they've kept managing to overcome uh, the blockade. Yeah, it's incredible to hear about. Um, it, well, it's very inspiring to hear about how people overcome such uh, adversity, um, and obviously, uh, it's been going on for such a long time. And to see that there's there's yeah, these inspiring communities and, and, and networks of solidarity, as you mentioned. Um, and yeah, it's incredible to hear about. It sounds like uh, it's been a, a really amazing trip and thanks for kind of giving us such an insight into the experiences that you've had over there. 
Um, and obviously we're looking forward to hearing more about it once you're back in the country. Um, uh, but I just wanted to ask before we wrap up, if there's anything else that you wanted to mention uh, about the trip or about your experiences in Cuba. Uh, yeah, I think, I guess after being, being there and seeing, seeing Cuba firsthand, I guess I'd sort of like to, like to tell people to, if they're not already to be, to be wary of, of this sort of portrayal or, or picture of Cuba that, that you get in a lot of the mainstream media. Um, you know, obviously you've got the really pro-US, anti-Cuba line, but I think even when Cuba's reported on, a lot of the time there's reporting on the problems in Cuba, um, you know, the fuel shortages, the medicine, the, the food, as if it's all just this internal problem that, that Cuba hasn't dealt with or that the government's mismanaging um, without recognising uh, the, the far-reaching impacts of the US blockade because um, it's therefore it's not a that's not accurate reporting if you don't, if you're not talking about how how uh, how crippling the the US blockade has been um, you know you'll see news news articles where you see photos of the long queues for bread and, and meat and petrol um, as I guess evidence that the Cuban system doesn't work um, and so yeah I'd guess I'd I'd warn people to be wary of that um, but then I also, you know, would also at the same time would encourage uh, everyone, anyone, if they can, if they have the means to, to go to Cuba. Um, you know, even if you don't speak Spanish, there's, there's still, there's so much opportunity for, there's brigades that are always organised, there's solidarity tours, um, there's so many amazing groups you can get in contact with that would take you to visit hospitals or visit schools and, and really see see how it works because um, we've we've got so much to learn from from Cuba um, and we also need to to keep supporting Cuba in any way we can thank yeah. you thanks so much for having me yeah 100% and thanks for taking time out of your trip to um, come and have uh, record this podcast today it's, it's been really fun no worries uh, you can find uh, Ben's writing online at greenleft.org.au um, and thanks for listening to the Green Left podcast today. Uh, as we mentioned at the start, you can help keep this project going by becoming a supporter at greenleft.org.au forward slash support. And make sure to follow at Green Left Online on social media. And please share this podcast around your networks. Um, thanks for listening. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month sharing this show on social media and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.